To all of you here, I just want to say thank you for being here. Uh, whether you go to this church or whether you don't, it's, it's good for us to be together right now. And uh, I want you to know, in case you're visiting or new or with us, uh, I just want to name right out of the gate what we've been talking about all service. And uh, it's that right now the house of the Lord is a house of mourning. And that we miss our brother who's been taken to be with the Lord. And that's what we're talking about this morning. Originally, we were to... um, we were, to, we were supposed to preach on Psalm 24 for our next psalm in the series that, that we're in the middle of. And this morning, that really doesn't fit what, we need, what I think we need to talk about this morning. And the thing about the Bible is, is that uh, you don't have to go far before you come across prayers of lamentation that help us in our grief. And there are a lot of places that we could go to. I looked to it a lot. Um, But uh, this morning, we're going to look at Psalm 25, which is an individual lament written by David, taken up in the context of a corporate worship service. So let's look together. This is Psalm 25. I'll read verses 1 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exult over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. And for you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions according to your steadfast love. Remember me. For the sake of your goodness, O Lord, good and upright is the Lord. Therefore, he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him will he instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being, and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him, and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord, for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me, for I am lonely and afflicted. And the troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. And consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. Oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait for you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. 
Oh Lord, you tell us that your strength is made perfect in our weakness, and we are gathered before you as a weak people, weak with suffering, weak with our wounds and our fears and our feelings of loss, and yet we are your people. And so I pray that you would be strong before us now, that the truth of who you are would be every bit as real as the pain that we feel. And would you help me, your servant, your weak servant, to go before your people now with words that comfort and words that strengthen, and that you might comfort and strengthen my own soul as well. Be with us. Let every word I say be honoring to you, comforting to your people and a true help during such a difficult time. Be with us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Earlier in the service, you sang these words. From the depth of woe, I raise to thee a voice of lamentation. Lord, turn a gracious ear to me and hear my supplication. Those words aren't from the psalm that we just read. They're from another psalm, Psalm 130. And in fact, if you read all the psalms, you'll find a variety of different laments scattered throughout. In fact, depending on how you look at it, something like 70% of the psalms are psalms of lament. And if that has anything to teach us, it at least teaches us this. That godly sorrow has an important place in the life of God's people. And the Bible is exceedingly honest about the reality that we live in. That when God created the world, he created it as it should be. And he called it good. And in Genesis 3, we observe as sin enters the world. And the the, the good relationship, the perfect relationship that existed between God and his people and God and his creation, the, the good place of life and flourishing that God created was violated and the world has not been the same since. And so we don't have to be afraid to say that the world is not as it should be. That our lives are not as they should be. That our bodies are not as they should be. Death is not the way it's supposed to be. And we don't have to equivocate on this. As God's people, we can look at Nathan's death and we can say, this is not the way it's supposed to be. There's a prominent place for the minor key in Christian worship. And even though we don't ask for it, and even though we're not wired for it, our sorrow is real, and it's good. We don't have to be ashamed of it. We don't have to hide it. It's not something we ask for. It's just something that we do. And the question for us is, what does it look like? What does godly sorrow look like? 
Well, that's where I want us to turn to Psalm 25 for help. Because we don't know what David is wrestling with, what calamity he's wrestling with as he wrote this prayer or this hymn. But boy, you can feel the sorrow coming right off the pages as you read it. And so I can't try to speak to everything that we're wrestling with this morning. This isn't a roadmap for what our sorrow should look like. I think to even try is to risk trivializing what each of us are going through. And I don't think that that actually exists. But I do think that we see some things here that might serve us. Kind of like guideposts along the way as we steward our sorrow together. So I'm just going to lift three things out of this passage and name them to you. And then ask us to labor forward. First, some elements of godly sorrow I see in this passage are honest confessions. I see honest confessions here. Holding on to memories. And a broken plea. David is exceedingly honest in this passage. And he makes several confessions. First, he confesses feelings of just simply being overwhelmed. Look at verse 2. He says, let me exalt over me. And then doubling back at the end of the psalm when he continues to describe his current state. In verse 16, he says, I'm, I'm lonely and I'm afflicted and are enlarged. He's overwhelmed. He says, my circumstances have a hold on me. And right now I'm unable to see past them. And in verse 19, he talks about the sheer number of people who are opposed to him. He says, consider what violent hatred they oppose me. You get sense, you get the sense that David said goodbye to his ability to take care of himself a long time old. And he's convinced that unless God acts, these enemies will prevail. He also confesses his need of guidance. And this is a major theme that you see throughout the entire psalm. Verse 4, make me your paths. And again in verse 12, he asks for instruction in the way that he should choose. And the truth about times of sorrow, like we're in right now, is that it can... And it fills us with confusion. Wisdom can feel so elusive during times like this. And boy, we have felt that this week, haven't we? That's okay. I confess to one of our elders my fear of just deepening a wound by saying something poorly. And the truth is we're all asking questions about how we should carry ourselves, where we should be. I want to help, but what does help look like if it's truly helpful? What words are good to say to each other? Or do friends who mourn? How do I even pray? And David is simply confessing his, his need for wisdom here. And it's good to ask for it in moments like this. Asking for guidance from God is an essential piece of godly sorrow. And we also see David confess his unworthiness to receive God's help. In verse 7 he says, Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. And in verse 11, he says, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Now listen, this is natural. Whenever we approach God for help, it's natural that we might remember our sin whenever we go before the Lord. But listen, I want to be really clear about something on this point. 
There is no connection in this psalm between the sins of David's youth and the circumstances he's enduring right now. It's, that's not what's in this passage. He's being honest. He's being honest about himself. He's being honest about his need. And he's, he's being honest He's being honest about um, his inability to take care of himself. Only an honest person can pray this prayer. And I think that there's something that we can learn about this. That there's an implicit humility in godly sorrow. It's humbling beyond comprehension. To stare at people, to stare at people we love who are suffering. And admit out loud, I can't fix this. And I don't know how to help. I've heard people confess to feeling lost this morning, or this week. I've heard people confess to feeling weary with sadness. I feel, I've heard people confess to feeling overwhelmed at what we're facing together. I'm with you in that. I've felt all those things too. And I just want to say that's true honesty. Those are good, honest confessions. And it's good that we say it out loud together because we need each other right now. It's important that we see that what David is doing here is he's written out a prayer or he has sung this prayer and then he gave it to Israel to pray or sing with him. That they were joining together in the context of a corporate worship service and sharing these words of sorrow that David is experiencing And he's giving us a picture of what it looks like to invite companions into your sorrow. I heard a story this week um, about a guy in our church. He doesn't know I'm about to talk about him, so I'm going to not name his name. But he sent a text to a couple of buddies one night this week. uh, And he said just the right thing. He said, any chance you guys are free tonight? And are able to come over to my house so that we can be sad together. And when I heard that, I thought that's exactly the right way to put it. That we would just be sad together. That's a healthy and good invitation. That's exactly what we need to be doing. Is gathering up and sharing our grief with each other. And one of the most haunting words in this passage is when David says, I feel lonely in my affliction. And because that's what afflictions do. They seek to isolate us in our grief. And so the impulsive obligation that I've seen in many of you, you're intuiting this already, is to simply indulge in the opportunity to attend to each other in the loneliness that accompanies sorrow. I want to tell you to continue to do that because we need each other right now. Don't disappear. Draw near. We are all here and you are welcome. And what's interesting to me is that David does make honest confessions, and that's good, and that helps us. But he also shares with God's people the memories that he's holding on to about who God is. First, he remembers that God is trustworthy. Look at verse 2, in you I trust. Well, that's what faith is. That's what it looks like to to live out in faith, even in the midst of difficult circumstances, trusting the weight of your life to God. And amidst all the terror that I'm confronted with, I'm still holding on to the claim that you are trustworthy. And this trustworthiness is important because he goes on to remember 
That he has received sacred promises from God to him. David is remembering, he's confessing his unworthiness in verse 7. But you know what he's actually doing in that passage? He's actually quoting words from God that were given to God's people on Mount Sinai. The covenant of promise. David is actually remembering that God said this to his people, that he will not remember us according to our transgressions, but will remember us according to his steadfast love. What you see here is that David is remembering things God has said, and then he's calling God to remember what he has said. And remembering is not a passive thing. It's actually exceptionally active in the Bible. And and it calls God to action based on his character. This is like a symphony of redemptive memory at work in this passage. And so what it is at its most basic level is a call to remember God's character. Good and upright is the Lord, he says in verse 8. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness, he says in verse 10. These are the things that are hard to believe in our sorrow. And yet they're also the reason that David is able to speak the first two lines of this song. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. He can't say that without holding on to these memories of who God is. He's holding on to memories of God's faithfulness in the past. And asking God that they might hold forth in the present. So one of the things I want you to see here is that godly sorrow. And a faith that honors God. These things are not mutually exclusive. They're not. Our sorrow doesn't swallow up our faith. And our faith shouldn't minimize our sorrow. In fact, what they do is... They coexist in some kind of curious, symbiotic way. Knowledge of God doesn't dismiss your pain. In fact, what it does, I would propose to you, is it helps to make sense of it. Because remembering the established goodness of God, His ways, and His character actually helps us understand the atrocities that we're surrounded by. If God is good, and He truly embodies good then it gives us permission to call evil what it is. How can we claim that things are not the way they're supposed to be without a picture of the way that they are supposed to be? But no, God is categorically opposed to the presence of evil. And even more personally, he hates that his people suffer because of it. Remember, Jesus wept in the face of death. He went to his friend's house. And he looked in the eyes of Mary and Martha. And he looked in the tearful eyes of all the mourners that they were surrounded by. And his spirit was deeply moved by tears of grief. And he broke down himself. He hates death. And the hope that we have found is in a memory that we too hold on to, that Jesus hates the death of his friends even more than he hates his own death. In fact, he went before us in death, and because of Jesus, 
Even though death remains our last enemy, death doesn't get to have the last word because Jesus wasn't held by death. He triumphed over death. And his, in his mercy, he shares this victory with us. And when he rose from the dead in his resurrection, he promises resurrection to all those who are his, who belong to him by faith. And that is the only reason that we could confess the faith that we did earlier in the service. We joined our voices and we said, we believe in the communion of saints. We believe in the forgiveness of sins. We believe in the resurrection of the dead. And we believe in the life everlasting. We believe these things. Nathan, believe these things. And this is the good gift of victory that belongs to you as well. It's as true as gravity itself. And yet even though we hold on to these sturdy and resilient truths, and they're good, and we need them, we still feel frail. We're weary with our sorrow. And on mornings like this one, we still feel our frailty. When life itself feels tenuous and even our prayers can become staggered and strained, I want you to know that that too is appropriate in sorrow. Because in a couple of ways, I look at this prayer and I just see a broken plea laid at the feet of Jesus. And I see it in a couple of ways. One is that I see it just feels scattered. And if you're familiar with David's uh, Psalms, you'll know that they're really well organized and they have a, a coherent line of thought, uh, uh, you know, all the way through. And there's usually a pivot in the Psalm where he begins to declare the truth about who God is and applying it to a scenario. But this one, it feels like he's kind of bouncing all over the place from verse to verse. And it can kind of be hard to see his thread running all the way through the passage. You can almost feel his sorrow is so raw, even as he's trying to process what happens as he writes. And so it feels like a scattered prayer. It also feels to me in some ways like an unresolved prayer. Uh, I think this is one of the reasons I, kept, I keep coming back to this psalm all week long. Because look at how the prayer ends. He says, I wait for you. I am waiting for you. I am waiting for you. Redeem Israel, O God. That is the place where David is in his sorrow. And it's our place too. We are waiting David, waiting for God's redemption. It's like his plea is just laid out there. And all he can do is wait for God to act on his behalf. The request has been made. But has there been an answer? I only say this to make this hard to know what to think right now. It's hard to know what to do. And if my prayers are like any of yours, it can be hard to know what to pray. But the broken pleas of God's people have their rightful place on our lips. Because there are times when a broken plea is all we have. And even though our cry to God may be faltering and our footing unsure, there is one whose blood speaks on our behalf. And his voice is perfect. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles, David cries. Here's your redemption. 
bought with his precious blood. I heard a friend say this to me yesterday, and I just want to pass it along to you. He had this to say. He said, if our sorrow does one thing for us, it creates in us a yearning for the world to come. That's promised by Jesus himself when he says he will wipe away every tear from every eye and death will be no more. You know how Psalm 130 puts it? Look at the last verse. His helping love no limit knows. Our utmost need is soundeth. Our shepherd good and true is he who will at last his Israel free from all their sin and sorrow. That's our cry this morning, and it's a good one. Thanks be to the God who hears our broken cries and stands ready to receive them. Amen. Let me pray. O Lord, be with us. Help us to mourn with those who mourn and weep with those who weep. I pray that you would join us in our sorrow. Give us wisdom as we navigate it. I pray that you would continue to apply the truth of who you are to our hearts. Help us to trust it. And I pray that you would hear our broken pleas for your mercy and your comfort during this time. Give them to us. Please be generous to us, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen.